Hello and welcome to Johnny and Tiggy Walker Consciously Coupling. Now in this podcast we're going to be chatting to other couples and finding out how they met. Who did the wooing or who wooed who. Whether they faced any struggles together. And the triumphs and the joys that they've had. We'll hear about the songs that they love, that they share and maybe some that they don't. And it's all with thanks to our partner the Velvetizer from Hotel Chocolat. Barista grade drinking chocolate at home. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to get a new episode every Wednesday. Right, let's get started. Let's. Now, this edition of Johnny and Tiggy Walker's Consciously Coupling, we are talking to a radio legend, Paul Gambaccini, who came over to this country at the age of 21 after studying in New York, and he came over to study, and he liked it here so much, he decided to stay. You downplay him a bit, Johnny. He was a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, he's smart. Oh, he is very smart. Very smart. (laughs) I don't think you should uh, forget that. No, not at all. Um, So he... I've, I've known him for years and years and years. I can't remember the first time that I met him. But well, Radio 1, presumably. Yeah. Way, well, I mean, we go way back. So the 70s? Yeah. So you, presumably, it would be when you were with me. Yes, I met him by you at the theatre or somewhere like that. And then probably about oh, nine years after I was on the scene with you, Chris arrived. And, um, and Chris was, bam, suddenly there at his side. They said it felt like they married quite quickly. Yes, they did. And, of course, Paul went through this dreadful time when he was on bail for a year. Everybody deserted him. Lots of friends deserted him after he was had some historic sex allegations made against him. It'll be quite interesting, actually, uh, to see how that period was for their marriage. I mean, if ever a marriage is put under stress and strain, that is it. I'm sure they will have come out stronger as a result, but I'm, sh- we, I'm sure we will hear more from them about that. Yeah, I mean, Paul has said in interviews since then that he doesn't feel he could have got through without Chris. He would have hated to have faced that challenge alone. He lost a stone in weight, couldn't go outside, at least for a week, because the press were camping outside his flat. So he had a really tough time. But he's a great broadcaster. They call him, uh, you know, a pop encyclopedia, uh, the professor of pop. (laughs) Well, uh, let's... um, Let's see how they are. Yeah, let's start our chat. Well, welcome to our little podcast. How are you both? Hello. Hello, how are you? It's good to see you both. You're looking good. More to the point, you're looking, which in this tech age is an achievement. Yeah, we're very well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Well, as a matter of fact, I'm really very well because Chris is here and he is my studio manager, as he has been for my on-air programs since lockdown started. Without him, I would be nothing. Now, granted, it's never been my career ambition to broadcast to a wall, but nonetheless, it's been wonderful to continue working and earning during this historic period. Is that the only reason you married him? For his studio technical (laughs) abilities? Uh, No, actually, um, (laughs) there was another reason. uh, And and that was that we were uh, uniquely and strangely completely compatible. Uh, 
from uh, the very first meeting we had, which was arranged because, believe it or not, shall we tell them the story? <laughs> Yeah, if, okay. If you haven't told okay. them already. Yeah. Okay, this yeah. is going to be the story. Well, actually, Tiggy and Johnny were there on our second date. You were there on our second date. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, there is. there's the surprise <laughs> of the entire hour. Yeah. Uh, what happened was, for eight months, I was on Facebook. Uh, but I was only on Facebook for eight months because too many people were sending friendship requests, and they only wanted to know me because it had gotten around that I'd known Freddie Mercury. And I was getting these friendship requests from Eastern Europe, and it was kind of bringing me down, this misuse of the word friend. And um, nonetheless, one day, in came this friendship request from someone named Chris Sherwood. And I was about accepting 40% of friendship requests. Now, it didn't look good uh, at first because his photo was of this young man holding a bottle of wine by the neck, and I don't drink, so I was not impressed at all. But in his description of himself, he went to the same university as I, and you know that we all think that whoever went to our old school is less likely to be insane than other people, even though there's no basis to believe that. Uh, and secondly, uh, it said that he'd been the gymnastics captain at Oxford University, which made me think, okay, there's two good things about that. One, he's probably fit. And two, he probably has a good sense of self-discipline, which, as you know, is required for radio. Uh, we need to be disciplined about time, about getting our programs prepared, and so forth. Anyway, so I sent back a message, accept. And then... I get home from work one day and see that my friendship request has been accepted, uh, much to my surprise. And then I just thought, well, I've got nothing to lose here. So I just wrote to him and said, hey, do you want to go for a drink? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I was not looking for a husband at this at this point. It was I was just kind of <laughs> looking for a bit of fun. And um, let me just backtrack a second. Why did you make the friendship request in the first place? Oh, well, actually, we, we have counterpoint to thank for it, in a sense. Um, I was on the BBC mailing list for audience tickets and I received an email one day for counterpoint and I saw the photograph of Paul in the email and I knew nothing about him but I was immediately drawn to the photo and thought wow he's he's very handsome um <laughs> it, right in my sweet spot um so uh I I did a bit of research I thought god what well well I booked tickets for counterpoint and then I did a bit of research and discovered that he was gay and um thought well you know who knows what might happen here? Uh, so our, our first date was Counterpoint. Um, and then the second date was the Carly Simon gig at the Maida Vale Studios, where we met you. <laughs> now, I have to explain, for those who don't know, Counterpoint is the music quiz show on Radio 4 that I host. Chris, not a bad second date. To go and see well, Carly I was, Simon. I was, yeah, I got to meet you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really mean that, Chris. It was a very intimate, privileged gig to be at. You must have oh, thought, absolutely. wow. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I, I felt very lucky um, indeed, yeah. And how quickly did you two know that this was something really special? 
Now, is Chris going to take this one? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I was slightly confused because uh, Paul, you know, didn't invite me back after the first date or the second date or the third date. Um, so I was, he was very casual. And in fact, what, what I missed out was the Hampstead Theatre, which was actually where we very first met, because um, I'd invited him out for a drink. And he said, well, I don't drink, but... I have tickets uh, to see Dunsinane at the Hampstead Theatre, which was written as a sequel to Macbeth, an RSC production. And that was where we very, very first met in person. And, and we saw the play and I was sort of a bit distracted, kind of looking at him during the show. And um, I, I definitely felt an immediate connection. Um, and at, at the end of the evening, I, I thought, well, this, this will be nice. He'll, he'll invite me back and we'll... Um, anyway, he just said oh well it's nice to meet you and off off he went uh, on the tube and I thought oh right well that's that's the end of that um <laughs> but we kind of kept in touch over email and then we had the Carly Simon evening and counterpoint as well uh and I it, it started to develop quite quickly um from there uh I think Paul's we, we we were each coming at it from very different perspectives and I think Paul was obviously being cautious and skeptical to some extent um learning a bit more about me and my intentions and but uh, i i remember going away on a skiing holiday after these dates had happened and uh, kind of missing him already and we we kept in touch and uh, it was a, it was a strange thing for me and at the time i was still very much in in the closet i was leading a double life and i i remember before i came out someone said to me you'll come out when you fall in love uh, and that's exactly what happened after, quite soon after I met Paul. I started to tell people um, 11 years ago. And by October of that year, we were living together. Paul, why, why were you play, playing it so cool in the beginning? Johnny, I'm a gentleman. Don't you know that? <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. You, you didn't want being... to rush it. Uh, exactly, exactly. But... That Carly Simon gig was the tip-off that I took Chris seriously because I not only introduced him to you, I introduced him to the head of the network, who was Lewis Carney, and they had a chat. Now, you don't do that with any floozy. And so it showed that I took uh, Chris to be an uh, intellectual peer and uh, someone who I was proud rather than ashamed of being associated with. So that, to me, was the real tip-off for Chris to pick up uh, that uh, I was taking him seriously. <laughs> so can I mention at this point that this podcast is done in association with The Velvetizer by Hotel Chocolat, uh, a way to have barista-grade drinking chocolate in your own home, now, I believe you already had a velvetizer. Yes, yes that's, that's correct. It was given to us by our friend Darren Brown, who is uh, the well-known, gee, what do we call him, illusionist? He's lots of things. He's a lot of things. But uh, he loves good food, and uh, he said, you're going to love this. And I indeed use it. And indeed, I last used it two days ago. So... Uh, it's it's really something that even I, who am a mechanical failure, uh, can operate. Um, Chris is most, laughing most of the time. <laughs> you know, when I I explained to to Chris when I was in high school, uh, we had our aptitude tests for various uh, subjects, 
And uh, I was a math genius, I, believe it or not. I, I was rated one of the highest in the state of Connecticut. But I can say that because that was balanced out by the fact that I was a mechanical failure. And uh, whenever I need anything like setting up this interview, uh, Chris comes to the rescue. But even I can use the velvetizer. <laughs> um, yeah. well, Paul, I want to go back to relationships because as far as I'm aware, you'd never had a really serious partnership before. And suddenly, you, you know, a serious relationship, marriage comes into your life. Did that take you by surprise? Uh, it, it did. It was something to which I had always aspired, uh, but it never quite worked out. Um, and indeed, the only time I... This is so sad. Um, the only time I had uh, a residential relationship uh, w w of any duration, uh, which could be called analogous to uh, a couple, was uh, with someone in the late 80s, and that lasted a year. And uh, then um, he went off with someone he thought could make him famous. And then uh, I took him back again. And after another year, he w went off with someone he thought could make him famous. Um, I had to take him back because I wasn't prepared to lose him the first time. Uh, and the second time, I thought, right, I'm going to take him back and I'm going to enjoy it. But I'm going to get ready for the idea that uh, he's going to go. And indeed, he did go again. And then uh, there was uh, there were two unsuccessful attempts that were not residential. So really, I had never had uh, an experience similar to marriage until uh, Chris. Now, you may think, oh, my God, what was that like? Well, you know, I think of Elton, um, who's been my dear chum since 1973. And he had a succession of non-starters, basically, uh, and, and, and short-termers uh, until he met David Furnish. Now, he'd, he'd had someone with whom he had a place in Atlanta uh, in the late 80s. Uh, but really, I w was twice in his life worried for him because he got, uh, as people now know, thanks to the fact that he can't stop talking about it, uh, he got quite depressed and... Uh, started using substances. Uh, but then uh, he met David Furnish and was happy. And people would say to me, what do you think of David Furnish? It was like people used to say, what do you think of Linda McCartney? And I would just say five words. He made my friend happy. I'm not interested in uh, the pros and cons of David Furnish or Linda McCartney or anybody else. If they can make my friend happy, I'm glad. And uh, Elton has been extremely happy with David, which shows that you can find a soulmate in later life as he did and as I did. As long as you're receptive, you'll pick up the frequency when it is broadcast. I knew I had to bring it back to radio. But uh, you see, you will get the message as long as you're ready to receive the message. I Chris, go on. Um, when you met Paul and living with Paul, his 
position in the radio industry and he's very well known through his TV and radio work. Was that a problem for you or did it open the doors to a world that you found fascinating? Um, it certainly wasn't a problem for me in, until certain things happened, um, which we may touch on at some point. Um, but it was um, it, it was interesting to me before I met Paul because I hadn't really met people in the public eye before. So I didn't really know what to expect. And I was intrigued by that. But the reality of it was just a complete sense of normality. And, and I didn't, I think I was surprised by how quickly I forgot about all that. And here was just a normal person um, who I got on very well with. So it wasn't an, anything that was a, a big feature of our relationship or how I perceived Paul. Uh, and, you know, day to day life, for anyone, no matter how well known, when you're at home, is is in complete absence of of all that. And it's one of Paul's old sayings that fame does not exist in your own head or your own world. It exists in other people's minds. It's not a tangible thing. So uh, it was just something that very I very quickly got used to it. And um, every now and again, people would come up to Paul and say nice things to him, and and that was nice to observe. Uh, but other than that, it, it was oddly normal. And did you suffer being starstruck when suddenly you're meeting Elton and you're meeting, you know, Stephen Fry? All close friends of Paul's are pretty kind of high-profile people. Was that a, a, a difficult thing for you to deal with? Was that a difficult thing to deal with? Not, not really, because... All, all of P Paul's friends, yourselves included, have been incredibly warm and welcoming. Yeah, I mean, there's an element of me feeling like I've got nothing in common with these people. But again, the the discourse to me is no different to meeting other friends of Paul's who, who I don't know and hadn't met before. And there is, of course, that element of uh, being f familiar with these people but not knowing them. You know, when you meet anyone famous, it's always a slightly surreal experience. Um, but again, within seconds, uh, all that sort of disappears and you're just in a normal situation having a chat over dinner. Um, and, and again, all that just very quickly disappears. Uh, so I think if, if you just be yourself and treat them as normal people, then, then it's absolutely fine. Elton's got a wicked sense of humour. Um, oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so do you remember any memorable moments of being with Elton? Me? Well, I was, I, I, was know, I was thinking, you know, this is, I, I, I've become aware that whenever this COVID period ends, uh, I will actually have more time. And uh, I thought, okay, it's time to write another book. And there are, there are a couple of writing projects I would like to do. But actually, I, I thought I could write an entire book called about Elton, meaning the things that happen about Elton, the things that Elton would probably never even have heard about, but had happened to his friends or in association with him that were in this traveling circus around him. Because there are so many funny stories uh, about Elton um, th that he probably doesn't even know about. I anyway, mean, um, Chris... <laughs> I'm glad I amused Tiggy. Paul said um, 
that Derek Chinnery said, and, and, and it's very true, if you can find a niche and not be popular or in fashion, you stay and you're always there. There was a year when Paul wasn't there. He wasn't there at all. The allegations were made, historic sex allegations were made against him. The BBC immediately took Paul off the air. The Labour Party that you'd campaigned for and hosted fundraisers in your own flat deserted you, as did many friends. So, Chris, you were very important to Paul at that point. How did you deal with it? Uh, wow. Uh, we are referring uh, to the night of October 29, 2013. We saw a show at the uh, Young Vic called the Scottsboro Boys. And then uh, in the early morning hours when it was still dark, um, we received the visit. Yeah, it was about... I, I was asleep and I heard the doorbell go and just kind of stayed in bed and let Paul deal with it. Um, and uh, I, I assumed something had happened without my knowing. Perhaps had been some noisy neighbours that Paul had been up and complained about or something. So I just lay in, that, lay in bed and, and listened. And, and I heard multiple footsteps. And my first thought was, oh, God, we're being burgled. So I stormed out of the room and saw Paul surrounded by these eight police officers and heard the words, we're arresting you on suspicion of a whole list of things, in, including the word buggery, uh, amongst various other uh, offences. And it was by far the most surreal moment of, of my life. And it uh, became more severe because after the word buggery, I turned to the police officer and I said, and I'm sure you remember this, is this what you wanted to do when you grew up? Um, anyway, uh, things went downhill from there. Yeah, and so Paul was taken away. And I was left in the house with the police officers as they went through everything. And that was a bizarre experience because you expect them to have some kind of sympathy for what I was going through. Um, but it was like they were enjoying a museum visit. Um, uh, they were going through my stuff and they found an old golf club diary from a, a golf club I used to be a member of. And they said, oh, you play at Hadley Wood, do you? Um, you know, just, just kind of casually chatting to me about, about stuff that they'd f found amongst my belongings. And then one of them called me down and said, oh, Chris, is this, uh, is this Walt Disney that Paul's with? And I pointed out to them that Paul, uh, Walt Disney had died a long time ago. Um, and this was the comic artist, uh, Stan Lee. No, it was Carl, Bro Carl, Carl, Barks. Carl, Barks, Carl Barks, who was the creator of the character Uncle Scrooge. Uh, so so they were just having a, a jolly old time um, while I was just sort of left there wondering what this was really all about. Now, I think it helped me to some extent that Paul had said, don't be surprised if the police come knocking one day. I didn't believe him when he said that. And this was not an admission of guilt, and he was waiting to be found out. It was showing an understanding of what was going on here. The police were on air inviting people to come forward, making allegations of a sexual nature, being told that they will be believed, and that there are financial incentives in the form of the Criminal Injur Injuries Compensation Scheme. Now, Paul, of course, before this, these appeals were made, had been on TV trying to have an intellectual discussion about Jimmy Savile and where society as a whole went wrong 
over that issue. Uh, whereas the press were focusing on the BBC, Paul was saying, well, hang on a minute, it wasn't just the BBC that kind of turned a blind eye to this. So while he was trying to uh, get to the bottom of this intellectually, um, the police had other ideas. And after the, their appeal, Paul said, well, that's it. In a, in a country of 60 million people, with me being in the public eye, uh, all it takes is one or two loonies to make a false allegation. And, and I've had it. So when it did happen, I, th there was part of me that thought, ah, OK, he, he was right. And, uh, and I kind of went in, into battle mode uh, and you just have to deal with it. So I phoned his relatives and, again, more lessons I've learned from Paul. He, Paul had, had told me about how the press behave in these circumstances and how uh, there was a, an instance back in the 80s I believe, when someone had made an allegation about Paul behaving in a certain way at a house party involving cocaine and sex on a kitchen floor. And this journalist was quizzing him about it. And this was at a time when the press were incredibly homophobic and being gay was a story. And uh, the journalist called him up and said, you know, is, is this true? And, and Paul neither denied it nor confirmed it. Because if you deny it, then they can't, can run a story saying... Paul Gambaccini denies um, doing X or Y. Um, so I, I phoned the, the relatives I anticipated might be approached by the press and said, just claim ignorance, don't deny anything, don't confirm anything. Um, and, at the, and I waited for the phone to ring. I had no idea how long he was going to be away. And, and eventually it did around lunchtime. And uh, that was a great relief to hear his voice and to hear that he was OK. And we, ha we had an interesting discussion because I had read in the press that another person had been arrested that day, um, a 74-year-old. And uh, I told Paul this, and this was a, a revealing fact that Paul's lawyer of that day picked up on. And indeed, it was uh, someone else that the same people who'd accused Paul had accused this person of misdemeanors as well. It was incredibly surreal and I was just thinking about all the ways I could be helpful. Can I just break in here and say how brilliant Chris's behavior was on that day? Because he did exactly what he should have done in the best case, which was to call everyone around the world. Because guess what? The media did contact all my relatives in every country, including my two female cousins who have different surnames and live in different cities in Connecticut. Now, that goes to show you the effort they were putting into this. And this was uh, a number of newspapers. It wasn't just uh, one paper. And indeed, my brother in New York, uh, quite comically, there was a guy from one newspaper who uh, got into the building and knocked onto his apartment door and say, can I come in? I'm a friend of Paul. And uh, Peter, my brother, having been warned by Chris, said, no, get away. And then there was another guy who tried to tailgate into the building, that is to follow a genuine resident. And my brother yelled down to the genuine resident, don't let him in, <laughs> don't let him in. <laughs> And uh, so she said a New York thing. 
She said to the reporter, don't even think about getting in here. <laughs> That's so New York. But then my brother in Switzerland was contacted. And uh, as a matter of fact, your parents got visited. Uh, yeah, my parents in Norfolk uh, <clears throat> got, got visited. Yeah. So this all happened on the first day while I'm still in the police station being interviewed. Now, I must just uh, embellish Chris's story uh, of explanation to one extent. I had been the first person to talk on television about he who still cannot be named. And I'd been asked to go on to uh, ITV Breakfast Time, which I had been a regular on for a dozen years. And I said, well, if Lorraine is going to be the interviewer, because I knew Lorraine Kelly and I trusted her implicitly and I knew she would not sensationalize the interview. So I went on and uh, she had a clip from a TV documentary that was going to run about him. And this was the exposure program. And she said, well, what do you think about that? And I said, well, I've been waiting 30 years for this story to come out. I mean, it was that natural because, let's face it, almost everyone who'd ever crossed paths with him has been waiting for 30 years for that story to come out. But we'd seen how society had protected him. Could you have got through all of this without Chris? No. Uh, although perhaps I could have found a way, but it's, that way is inconceivable to me now. And I must tell you that of all of the arrested suspects, only one of them was deserted by his spouse, and that was Max Clifford. And as you know, Max Clifford was convicted. But everyone else, the spouses stood by them. Jimmy Tarbuck said of his wife, Pauline, she is my rock. Uh, Harvey Proctor, uh, the former MP who was so ghoulishly accused of murdering three people who had turned out never lived, uh, was supported by his partner. And so it went. Somehow, people like Chris intuitively knew this is nonsense. And they performed, not only in Chris's case, solid support, but perspective that was objective rather than subjective. Chris, how did you deal with it? I mean, it was a year of your lives were absolute hell. It just injustice, injustice, injustice. How did you cope with propping Paul up through that? Um, of course, on that day when he was in the police station and I was at home, it does cross your mind and you have to ask yourself, is it possible that he has done something uh, illegal? And this is where him being such a gentleman when we first met came uh, in handy for me because I thought, well, I, he, he's the most gentlemanly, gentlemanly man I've ever met in a sexual context. Um, so that makes it very hard to believe. But still at the back of your mind, you think, well, these, these events supposedly took place 30, 40 years ago. Maybe things were different. He was different. He was a lot younger. I mean, who knows? Um, it wasn't until he got home with the allegation statement that listed uh, the offences in more detail when I actually laughed because <laughs> it listed these various sexual activities and sexual acts that I knew that uh, Paul, knowing him as I do, 
was absolutely not into and never has been. His exact quote was, you don't even do these things to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so that was, again, useful for me because I, I thought, oh, OK, these are definitely false allegations. So I immediately feel the injustice. That was a, a great motivator to stand by this man who I love to help him get through it at whatever cost. Um, the added layer to this was the press attention. And as the week progressed, more and more press were surrounding our buildings. They were phoning my phone, uh, emailing me. And this is when it started to become overwhelming and a way of being that I did not sign up to. You know, I, I was a small town boy and, and here I was at the center of a national scandal. And I, I, I did find that overwhelming. And on the Friday of that week, it was the 50th anniversary of the National Theatre. And Paul had tickets to it. We were due to go together. Uh, but of course, all the press were outside wanting a photo of him. So he said, I, I can't go, but I really want you to go. So I went with um, an ex-boss of mine, a, an Australian girl who, who I was very close to. And she was very theatrically inclined. And... Um, I got lost in it and it was Judy Dench singing Send in the Clowns that just completely broke me. And I, I haven't even, still haven't seen a little night music. Uh, I was familiar with the song, but it just, you know, when a song finds a place and a time, and, and the song in the context of the musical is irrelevant to these circumstances, but those opening lyrics, um, look at us now, are we a pair, you on the ground, me on the ground, you me on the ground, and you in midair was geographically right. I was there on the ground at the National Pool, was up in the air in our top floor apartment, and just the absurdity of the situation rang so true with the sentiment of sending in the clowns to tell me that this is all a big joke, and I just burst into tears, and I was there at the back of the National Theatre, bawling my eyes out. So all this pent up uh, fear, and. Um, it kind of all, all came out then, but it changed my mindset. And that was when I sort of came back and remembered the, you know, the marriage vows till death do us part. Because at that point, with all that press, I, I really did just want to run away from it all and, and not be a part of it. But it was that big catharsism, uh, and I can't listen to that song now without welling up, was when I kind of rallied and said, right, I'm, I'm going to be there for him and do whatever I can to get him through it. Let's talk about some other songs. Was there a song that you that became your song earlier on in your relationship? <laughs> well, uh, I think there is, although I'll be interested to hear if Chris agrees. <laughs> when we agreed to be married, we uh, agreed, of course, as we said before, it was not going to be a religious ceremony. So we were going to write our own vows and construct our own ceremony with the minister who was my old friend. But uh, when you make that decision, you don't know what, that vow, what those vows are going to be. And so I said, well, don't worry, it'll come to us. I had the confidence because we decided a year in advance, we wanted to plan this meticulously so that when the day came, we could walk through it rather than stress out. And then a few months after we agreed to get married, it just came to me and I said, oh, I know, All the Way. Now, I remember the first time I heard All the Way by Frank Sinatra. 
I was eight years old. I was sitting in the kitchen at home. It was breakfast time. I was listening to WINS New York, 1010 Winds New York. And the pick hit of the week was always introduced by the breakfast DJ on a Monday. Well, this week, the DJ was away and the show was being hosted by the sports reporter, a man named Bill Stern. And he played this new pick hit of the week all the way by Frank Sinatra. And he said at the end of it, this is never done in radio, but that record is so great, I'm going to play it again. And obviously he didn't worry about losing his job because he's the sports reporter. So he played it again and it made a very deep impact on me. And I love the song. And when it occurred to me, oh, wait a minute, this actually reads like marriage vows. When somebody loves you, it's no good unless they love you all the way. Through the good and lean years and through all the in-between years, come what may. Who knows where the road may lead us, only a fool would say. But if you let me love you, it's for sure I'm going to love you all the way. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is, is a marriage vow. So we divided up the lines, and those were our marriage vows. Brilliant. Without a doubt, our song. Yeah. Yeah. And if you had to, Chris, choose one song in the world to dedicate to Paul, what would it be? Uh, well, I mean, apart from that one, it's another wedding-associated song. Is uh, The End by Earl Grant, which as a title doesn't sound quite right. Um, <laughs> but one of Paul's friends sung it acoustically at our wedding, and uh, it made me cry again. Um, so I, I will always associate that song with Paul um, and our love will go on until the end till the end of time till the end of time uh, yeah and, and then I mean the other one which sending the clowns again just for uh, you know love can hurt as much as it can make us happy and the hurt I was feeling was only because I loved him so much and that song kind of brought all that out and that's the power of music and uh, I think I, I have a when it comes to music and my the songs that last with me it's they lean on the melancholy because I think happiness comes much more from uh, external events and relationships I think the the sadness is certainly for me is, is harder to express and to feel and to let out uh, in day-to-day -day life and it's it's music that unlocks those um, feelings for me uh, and allows me to feel them which which is a great thing and, and theatre and film as well but particularly music so often my, my favourite songs and the songs that always resonate with me are, are generally quite quite melancholic you know well this podcast I knew it would be fascinating uh, it's a great love story apart from anything else Absolutely. What Chris did for me during that year alone and in the subsequent years as we took action against the Crown Prosecution Service and then the police, both of which actions were successful, he has been beside me all the way. <laughs> and we have all the way. There you go. And, and we have become close in ways that most people are never tested as I know you two have as a couple as well in your own way. And this is the secret sauce in the great relationships. They are tested. 
and the people pass the test. He's a very handsome rock. <laughs> rock of ages. Stop it, Johnny. But I just, I do want to ask Chris, because Chris, out of the, the marriage, you have turned your career from advertising to actor. And mm. do you feel that through the marriage and through the strength you've got through your love and bond together, it's given you the confidence to completely change your career? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And it was it was a, a very gradual process. I mean, I, I, I came to London and went into advertising not really knowing what I wanted to do or be. I'd certainly never considered being an actor, although I always loved acting when I had to do it in the Boy Scouts and at school. Um, but I didn't do drama at school because I just didn't feel like I was that kind of person and just never, ever considered it. And there was no scene where I grew up, you know, it was a little town in Leicestershire. And it was only when I moved to London that I started going to the theatre and saw people acting and doing plays. I'd, 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 I'd go to a pantomime once a year growing up, but I'd never seen plays really. And, and it was seeing, you know, the first play in London I saw was at the Bush Theatre. And that was a, a, a defining moment for me because I was so blown away by this play um it had Rafe Spall in it it was called if there is I haven't found it yet um by Nick Payne I think and um it was uh, a really profound moment and then I went to see more and more plays and I saw people acting and I thought gosh they're, they're not even that good uh some of them and they're doing it as a career and I and I thought oh the reason they're doing it as a career is because they decided to do it um and so I decided to do it and I joined Amateur Dramatics and then went to drama school. I did a year at Central uh, and it just it just went from there. But absolutely, it was a great distraction to be starting on a new career while all this was going on. Um, and it gave me fuel. Uh, you know, I'd had a very simple, easy life uh, up until that point. I hadn't really had any major ordeals to tackle. Um, and actually having events like that happen to you and the emotional energy of those events to draw on when you're doing scenes in, a, in an acting context was actually actually really useful. Um, so thanks, Paul, for that. Um, the one moment when I knew I had affected him in the way of giving him confidence, and this is going to sound funny, around the house, he would be reluctant to sing and gradually I wore down his reluctance and he would sing around the house. And then one play he had to sing on stage. And even more of a challenge, he had to sing badly. He had to sing I Will Survive off key. But he did it brilliantly every night. And I thought, okay, that's a, a way in which our relationship has helped, even though people are receiving it as an off-key version of I Will Survive. And is there any music or any song that divides you? <laughs> there is nothing to... Well, there is no song that I love that I'm aware of Chris hating, but there are songs that I know he can't grasp the full reason why I love them as much as I do. And the one which must come first is Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. Because that is the song of my American generation. Indeed, when Martin Scorsese did his documentary on Bob Dylan, he called it No Direction Home, which is a phrase from Like a Rolling Stone. And when, in 1973, I went to the Spectrum in Philadelphia which is an arena. He was touring with the band. I'm sure you remember it. 
and the lights were out and they started like a rolling stone. And then Bill Graham, who was the promoter, had, unbeknownst to us, a brilliant idea. Turn the house lights up. And he turned the house lights up mid-song and we all saw that we were standing and singing together as one. So that is our anthem. But Chris hadn't even been born, so it couldn't be his anthem. So that is part of that song that he can't appreciate. I won't say he dislikes it. Yeah, I, I definitely don't dislike it. Any music, any music that Chris plays that you can't stand? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, uh. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's genre rather than an individual song. And yeah, I mean, I, I have a, I have a, a bit of an EDM leaning uh, for certain circumstances, electronic dance music, um, and 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 with that kind of music, it's you know there's the songs that come and go quite quickly. And at, at the moment, I'm quite into uh, Bicep, who are a duo from Northern Ireland, and uh, the, one of their latest singles was Apricots, uh, and I heard it on Six Music and loved it and uh it's paul can't stand it it's the repetitive nature of it and uh, he actually told me to turn it down the other day but it's the kind of thing that gets me going i'd, I'd love to pole dance to it you know there there are two reasons why that style of music is anathema to me but one is that when i was in school my personal bully made a motion to slap my ear and i pulled my head away just enough that he didn't make physical contact, but my left ear had all of the air sucked out of it, which caused a slight perforation of the left eardrum. And for six weeks, I had constant tinnitus, and I didn't know when it was going to go away. It did, thank heaven. But to this day, repetitive bass and drum causes physical pain in my left ear. And hence, you can imagine how, in the late 80s, when a musical form that was actually called bass and drum came along, I thought, well, this is my personal hell. This was invented to torment me. And so all of the forms which use repetitive bass and drum, particularly loud bass and drum, and that would have included jungle, electronic dance music, and a lot of hip-hop, is physically painful to me. Also, the other reason why I don't like that... Uh, instrumental t sound generated by synthesizers and computers is that there are no volume contrasts. And as someone who was classically trained, and we haven't even gotten on to that side of things, and to someone who grew up during the Motown years, where classical musicians from the Detroit Symphony played on the Motown sessions, think of records like My Girl or Reach Out, I'll Be There, I love the sound of genuine instruments. And I think that anything that is, is it is made of a nature on a, a synthesizer or a computer is less interesting to me personally. I'm not knocking anybody who enjoys those. I just don't like them as much personally. Bring back Smokey Robinson is what I say. <laughs> Gosh, it's lovely to talk to you both. It's fascinating. We could go on all evening. I think we? this podcast would be parts one and two. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, a pleasure to talk to you because, you see, we recognise you as one of these couples. 
you know, Kit Jensen and his wife Gudrun are another one of those couples. And they've been through the mill because, of course, uh, Gudrun has been helping Kid with his Parkinson's. And uh, so it's, it's when challenged you rise to the occasion or you don't. And when you do rise to the occasion, it is glorious and takes the relationship to another level. Hallelujah. How fortunate we have been to have met yes. the partners we've met. And oh, my gosh, yes. Is that fate? I would like to think that particularly when it happens later in life, it's uh, God saying, you know what? Your report card is pretty good. It's time something nice happened to you and something nice happened to us. Right. That's great. We'll end it there. Thank you both so okay. much. Cheers. Thank you. God so, bless. So <laughs> lovely to see you both. And I look forward to seeing you in the flesh. In the yeah, theatre. In the theatre. In the theatre. Or at a oh, music event. Gosh. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It will happen. Well, Johnny. That was incredible. That was absolutely amazing. And what an incredible... I mean... Chris, always a danger when he's out with Paul, and Paul is so articulate um, that Chris doesn't get much of a look in. But um, when we did give him the chance to talk, what an amazing man he is. He is so deep, and, and he has... When you think of where, where he came from, he was a Norfolk boy who had never sort of experienced fame or showbiz or anything, and how he's developed and supported Paul. It's a true love story, that. And they have really have been through the worst. That's what they have been through. It's far worse than going through somebody who's ill, I think. I mean, their their very existence I was kept, threatened. I, I, I kept seeing scenes of from It's a Sin, uh, uh, these characters that came from outside of London, into London, and all of that thing. And, and that's, you know, Chris was, as you say, from the sticks, in a way. Uh, but my God, he, he definitely stepped up to the plate when needed. He did, and uh, I actually loved his emotional response to music. I thought he expressed so well how a song can bring out of you the feelings that you have deep inside you, but you don't know how to voice them, like Send in the Clowns, which is, it just floors you when you hear Judy Dench sing that. So I thought he encapsulated the power of music brilliantly. I really enjoyed talking to them. Well, that's it for this edition of Johnny and Tiggy Walker, a Consciously Coupling. Uh, we thank our partners, the Velvetizer, brought to you by Hotel Chocolat, who uh, the machine makes it possible for you to enjoy barista-grade drinking chocolate at home. And we thank John Daly of uh, Ojo Productions for their help on putting together this podcast. Join us next time. Take care. Bye-bye.